Hello, salams, and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast with your hosts, me, Yasmin Lee, and Zara Chowdhury. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication dedicated to travel, culture, and history from a Muslim perspective. In this series, we'll be talking to writers, artists, historians, and a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. episode we'll be discussing notable literature professor and cultural critic Edward Said, known best for his work around Orientalism, specifically his legacy and influence, um, especially on Muslims in the West and people of colour. We'll also be talking about Orientalism within travel photography, so Steve McCurry and all manner of other controversial topics, so stick with us. We are joined by Ali. Ali is a creative who has spent the last decade travelling the Muslim world to photograph Islamic architecture. He's also a writer and is currently working on two photo poetry books, one on Iran and the other on Medina. You might remember Ali from our previous podcast on Iran. He's also a commentator on modern Orientalism and has been raising his voice on social media to bring attention to the phenomenon of Western gaze and the resulting racist and reductionist views of non-Western people. We are also joined by Zane. Zane is a multi-award winning advocate, social commentator and creative producer. He's been featured on Sky News, BBC World, Dazed, University of Cambridge, King's College and The Metro. His work as a creative producer started at the age of 15 um, and currently he is an artist in residence at Metal. Um, Zane is also working on creating a documentation and exhibition of the memories, thoughts and lives of the first wave of Pakistani migrants to his home city of Peterborough. So we're going to start with Ali who is just going to discuss and give us a bit of a background on Edward Said and his legacy. We, we all know Edward Said, or we don't, we may have heard of him and then the word Orientalism. And he really made, I, I'm not sure if he coined that word or he popularized it or gave it a, a meaning. But essentially for me, I think what Edward Said has done is he's legitimized or he's formalized a study or, or a phenomenon of how for hundreds of years, the, the as he calls it, the Orient, someone from the East, from in, in my words, I like to call him the native which mm-hmm. is which is a word that's often used to describe people who are the other, and this is in reference or relation to or or in opposition to um, what what the Europeans for a long time were calling the the natives of their colonies. So at the the height of the imperial era of Asian and African nations, Edward Said argues that there was an institutionalized set of standards, stereotypes, and racism and reductionism that were used to identify and, and create an identity for for the other, for the native, for the Indian, for the African, for essentially anybody that was a subject of the of the empire. And and the way this was done was you create a a contrast to yourself. So this wasn't mm-hmm. really a, a way to examine a people and give them an identity. He argues that you essentially say they're the opposite of yours. If you're logical, if you're educated, if you're a rational being, the native, the orient is the opposite. So for me, Edward Said has been critical, critically important in this as he's finally given a, a phenomenon, a study, uh, he's formalized something that we felt for a long time. And so in the last 20, 30 years, it's become a, a very important phenomenon in photography, in writing, in authorship, in almost every part of life. And as, as a South Asian or as a Muslim, we've now finally have a have a way to say, look, this is something we always felt, but now this is an academic area of study. This 
this, you know, there's study behind this and it proves there, there's definitely a level of Orientalism that is still impacting us today. And where Edward side stopped, I think we, we need to now critically look at and say, where can we continue with this work? And mm-hmm. what is the legacy and what is the future of it? So mm-hmm. in terms of Muslims, we all need to un- understand that there's a there's a certain level of Orientalism done by the Europeans or the, or the Western world. And there's a certain level of self-Orientalism we do to ourselves. So that's yeah. kind of my, my my understanding or brief summary of what I think what this means for us in the past and what I think we should be looking at going forward. Yeah, and it's it's sort of very much a market, especially now, created by a lot of assumption, um, I suppose. Um, and Zane, if you if you just wanted to touch on, on the same sort of just comment on what, what you feel Saeed's legacy and influence um is right now and the impact it has on specifically Muslims and just people of colour um and the West. Uh, no, I I definitely um, agree with everything Ali has said, um, and essentially echoing his words. I think the best way is that um, Edward Said exposed the sort of romanticized notion of Orient, mm-hmm. whatever the Orient meant. Yeah. Um, and by extension, the Orient was anything which was non. European, non-white, non-Caucasian, non-POC, essentially, um, in in modern days, in modern day terms, um, it enabled many academics uh, to take forward that study. Yes, um, but also at the same time, it caused huge, huge rifts in, in in amongst Orientalists. You know, the ones that used to take that as as a term of of great pride now were the ones that were actually um, were being called out for 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 that and i i remember actually when we were studying edward said um mm. and when he was first introduced actually my islamic studies teacher was not not a muslim white white professor um i don't want to give out his name but he was he he explicitly said how offended he was and how um how much of a gen- generalized notion this was for for edward said to to sort of brandish um academic literature which was not from the uh, which was not native to the orient as orientalist and like it was a really interesting because that that was my mm-hmm. first sort of introduction to orientalism in yeah. an academic circle like you hear about orientalism here and there it's thrown around in yeah. woke circles um but for me personally it's it's on a personal note notion and i think no no i think orientalism in modern day terms as well extends far beyond um just uh, the white critique um, mm-hmm. It actually needs to, a lot of the times we talk about, like, you know, how we internalize colonial legacy. I think a lot of mm-hmm. the times as well, um, as POCs, um, people of color um, in BME communities as well, sometimes you can romanticize the, the lived experiences um, of communities which we may sometimes represent or may be from. Yeah. Um, so that's also, like, it, it's also a really interesting way to to sort of see it. And that was a conversation which I was having with a friend only about a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, this whole Instagram culture as well. But I think coming back to it, for me, Orientalism um, in a nutshell was this whole idea of, of brandishing, romanticizing. Um, and then it, what, what leads from romanticizing is, is the fetishizing of, of, a, of a culture which is foreign. Um to feed mm. into things like from all the way to your um, fic- fictitious uh, depictions from 1001 Arabian Nights to, mm. uh, oh sorry, 101 Arabian Nights to the, the ways that we, we depict till today in populist culture and mediums. Um, yeah, you are right, actually. It was, it's 1001 Nights by Richard Burton, 
I think. Um, and I'm just interested because you touched on sort of the outrage of your professor because it was a sort of, I guess um, what Saeed did was sort of look at canonised texts and writers and artists that were very highly regarded in that time and sort of break them down. And now nowadays with Instagram and social media, we can sort of translate that into photography um, and sort of do, as Ali was saying, the same sort of work, like we need to sort of carry that on. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I was just quite curious as to why your lecturer had a problem with the... It, it was also, and I actually, um, this lecturer is, is, is quite well known. Um, right. And until today, actually, there's so many people that have written critiques against Saeed's work. Um, and that comes from, I think, a place, place of either fragility or from, from their own insecurities as well as academics. Um, but a lot of the times it's also, um, I, I noticed throughout academia um, and also culture, cultural criticisms, cultural critique is always best suited to those that, so how can I put this? I'm going to be very direct. Um, when non-POCs make cultural critique, it, mm-hmm. it's seen as non-biased. It's seen mm-hmm. as from a place of a, a informed opinion. But when POCs, BME communities, people of um, people who have come from those communities make the cultural critiques themselves, yeah. we're always challenged about our biases. And I felt that's what was coming out because I respected this lecturer um, for, for the work he's done, and especially in this, on Islamic history and sort of mm-hmm. Western academia um but the fact that he was very uncomfortable and made it very clear um about his perspective on orientalism um was it was it was amazing because like you obviously you study um you you his work references people like hurani albert hurani who's he's obviously adward saeed also calls out as well um there there are other people who who were very um uncomfortable around uh, around that and by extension as well um it's an interesting, like, I, th- I think a lot of the times people felt like Orientalism was a reductionist text for them. Um, mm. And that's what comes across a lot of the times when I hear from a lot of white traditionalist professors. Um, just to, and- just, sorry, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, because one of the main criticisms he, he receives, whether it's from people who really hated him, like Bernard Lewis clearly did, um, or from people who did respect him one of the biggest criticisms he received was the fact that they said he was very selective in in the use of his sources um Mm. so they said he picked he picked and chose people who kind of reinforced his theory and that's something I find quite hard to speak against because in in the sense that most people are not widely read enough do you know what I mean because he touched on so many different disciplines hardly anybody is widely read enough to kind of almost refute that so you kind of just you've kind of just left at a dead end almost yeah I, yeah i see what you i mean. think i think the thing i think the that's an interesting challenge because what what something that i learned early on from edward side was just how well referenced he was he's one of the very few people in i mean he was a professor of comparative literature so he knew he knew the you know he knew the western canon he know he knows the eastern he's, he's fluent in arabic you know, for his arguments were always made with very well documented and referenced um, techniques. And this is something he used heavily to make arguments. So when you hear something like that criticism, I mean, he references um, Jane Austen. This is, in my eyes, that's not selective picking. You're picking something which is which is a very, you know, I, I'm not how you would categorize 
um, you know, sense and sensibility or um, what's the most popular one by Jane Austen that everybody loves? Um, Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> so I read that too. After I read Edward Said, and he, he he used that as a reference. I thought, how on earth could you use Pride and Prejudice as an example of Orientalism? So he, you know, he explains the, the detail and the nuance behind Orientalism. He doesn't reduce it into a if you're white and you talk about the native, you're an Orientalist. And that's a very lazy way of doing it. So I read his criticisms from from other other people, and I think there's a need really to to revive what he was talking about in today's world and say, look, you can't, the poor man's dead. You can't, you, you know, you can't now bring up arguments and say he was, he was lazy in his referencing or selective. Uh, but his, his, his principles, he explains in about 20 pages in the beginning of the book, what he means by orientalism. And anyone who's interested, I would recommend to pick it up and, and judge it for yourself. I think he, I think he using almost like a scientific method for, for his, you know, analysis he breaks it down perfectly, um, but unless there's any counter arguments specifically, I think it's hard to discuss it on on the podcast. But um, I would I would argue his um his his referencing and his technique is um is should be applauded. I think he's one of the few people um, today whose work still allows us to understand how you properly digest and extract um, and I guess deconstruct a work um, and then and, and explain what what the issue is with that. I've yet to see someone else. As well, argumentative mm. um, as mm. he as he was. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that his work had an influence on so many different fields as well just kind of goes to prove the strength of his argument. Because even if even if you were to agree that some of his source um, choice of his sources were selective, I feel like the overall impact of the book just proves that there's something there that like people saw the truth of it and that's how it kind of affected so many different fields of study and yeah. people had to rethink the way subjects were taught and all the rest of it and it went beyond um the oriental world whatever you want to call it yeah it, yeah it, um i i think it covers so many different grounds it covered art um and literature as well as well as current pop culture as we're seeing it now and the stuff i was reading about i mean how many of us have been compared to like Aladdin and Jasmine in the Disney cartoons and that all boils down <laughs> to that criticism and even like in uh, the space that I work in two weeks ago somebody said oh you know who you remind me of Jasmine from Jasmine and Aladdin and I was like oh <laughs> great this is still happening and so it, it's still happening in our spaces and I think it's kind of what Ali touched on earlier um, which I really resonated with about how we sort of it's it kind of with Edward Said, obviously it came to a point and we kind of need to pick it up again. Um, yeah, so if we focus more on travel photography now, yeah. because like you said, like using his work and applying it to other yeah. areas or wherever we can go from here. Um, so Ali, recently on Instagram, you've really focused on pointing out what you, what you perceive as problematic elements within travel photography, kind of as a genre or a discipline, um, like on especially on Instagram. And it's usually when the photographer is either Western or white and the subjects are non-Western or people of colour. Um, could you maybe elaborate more on that and what it is you find problematic? Okay, so I... Yeah, so I've been focusing on this for a few reasons. And just before I begin, I, I'm going to use a few words which might be racially charged, like saying white. I don't typically like saying white, black, or brown, but when I... When yeah, I, I find it word, hard to say that, I have to admit. Um, and, you know, when I say the word white, I, I really mean instead of mind. 
um, not mm-hmm. not physically your skin, because I yeah. feel like mm-hmm. you know you can argue about brown and black people would not come under the same same grouping of 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 being white in in the way they see see the world. Um, and that's happening as a result of integration and, you know, generations of people being raised in the West. We started adopting their way of thinking and would look through the world through their lens, which is which is one of the big problems I'm I'm trying to tackle is how do we ourselves see exactly what is going on? Because we, you know, we, we're part of a very Western um, yeah. dominant culture. And it's very difficult yeah. to convince, you know, a brown person or Muslim or black that, hey, look, you're you're being very reductionist in your own view. And, and we ourselves um orientalist and we will you know sometimes we are accused of being racist to our own people and i think we can all Absolutely. relate to that yeah so so with that defined so i'll, I'll use the word white and, I, and it just means this really dominantly means white but it means anyone who comes in the same uh, lens so the issue that i've started seeing is you know is is how the the burden in my mind so i i divide the world up into two stages one is is uh is pre-colonial one is post-colonial so edward side's work work focused heavily on um, pre-colonial and the colonial times, but he didn't examine too much of 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 you know the late 90s and I guess what's happening now with the explosion of social media and and how everyone now can travel easily and freely and there's a huge culture of travel photography and everybody needs to go to the same thing with the same looking people wearing the same kind of kind of clothes and this is a phenomenon that Edward Said might not have seen as much of or maybe he did but you know I haven't seen his um is much work on that. So my my issue with this is if you take people like Stephen McCurry, who's who in my who I would call um, the father of travel photography, from my experience, and and I would say the father of Oriental travel photography, because he's mm-hmm. what he's done is he's created this this phenomenon, this world, which which to someone who's never been to India um, looks looks you know a particular way, and I would argue it's an inaccurate. Um, depiction of a place of a region that really doesn't look or behave people don't live lives the way he depicts them and, and you know as a form of storytelling so if you're doing travel photography i've always felt you have to be a accurate in in, in what work you're doing if you're working in a, as a as a as a movie maker you have full artistic freedom to use any any methods you would like but if you're doing travel photography there's always a danger that people are taking what you're showing them at face value. So I learned this, uh, a lot of this in Iran. When I was in Iran, I realized a lot of the things that I was told about Iran from from the cosmopolitan side to the tribal side of Iran. And Iran is a very diverse nation. Um, the images just did not hold true. And what I was showing to people on my Instagram for, of Iran was, was breaking a lot of stereotypes and a lot of um, barriers that people didn't know they already had in their minds. Um, I was constantly asked about the oppression of women and how they look and the way they dress. So I try to make an effort to explain that. I was asked about minorities and I try to explain that. So a lot of National Geographic, and I would argue they're, they're some of the biggest propagators of this this the problem of travel or just photography. They would they would source as photographers, freelancers, or whoever they may be from the West, and they would go to Iran, they would go to Pakistan, they would go to India, and they would take photos which which really created a narrative. Which was pleasing to the eye is, is you know beautiful photogenic work, and it would win awards. And I and I just kept thinking this is beautiful pieces of work, but this is not the people. This is not the culture. This is not the way we practice our lives. And I would really appreciate if we took away that that um, you know that manipulation just to make things a little bit more spicy for for someone looking. And I think that's the key issue that I have is not white people going to middle east or africa is is what is it that you're showing in the context of the mm. wider 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 world yeah. if you're only going to be going to slums in india if you're only going to be going to 
um, villages and safaris in Africa, are you really showing the full picture? Yeah. And and so I've had a lot of criticism saying that I've been unfair, that people are just curious and they're discovering a world and they're helping other people understand the, you know, the beautiful and the quote unquote beautiful people of the world. Um, and and I and I just want to laugh at that because I think it's such a fine line to be drawn between how you show, uh, or I guess the, the, the important point is how why you only show a certain part of the world. Um, so I've been I've been examining National Geographic's um, uh, winners for the last ten years, and I'm trying to put together a piece on on, on how systematically they yeah. they, they practice yeah. this. But that's what Saeed was saying, right? As in the Orient as a stage. And so the kind of photography you would see now, the travel photography, it's like the whole of, I think he said something about the whole of the East being confined to one stage and we sort of use it as a kind of theatre. Um, and I suppose that's what you're, I, I gather that that's the, essentially the problem because where's the differentiation and how do you tackle that, I guess is my question. So I think what what he talked about was absolutely spot on, and I think what's changed is 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 a number and the quantity of people that have started doing the same thing. And what happens now is, if, for example, if you have a friend who's who's Italian, French, German, English, and they go to India, there's a certain expectation that they want to see a certain kind of India. They have mm-hmm. to experience a certain type of environment, certain amount of food, music, and the ambience and everything. And and the key, the key to this, in my mind, is, is the problem is that they don't feel there's a burden on them. They don't feel there's a responsibility on them as travel photographers or just even tourists to actively depict the people they're interacting with. And that reductionist and that absolutely divided set of ideas that, look, my my forefathers were maybe colonizers, but I have nothing to be accountable for. And you can argue that's maybe true or not true. Um, but if you're going to be a European traveler, in a country in, in in Africa or in South Asia, I think you you do have the burden, you do have the responsibility, in my personal opinion, um, of making sure you don't fall into the same traps that your forefathers did in the way they defined our people and the way they want to see us behave. Um, yeah. Because we are less photogenic when we're like them. So this is the othering that's still happening where people are either seen being photographed with, you know, um, black children in a village and, you know, and this thing, look, this is what I came for. And they don't say it, but I think it's an expectation that if you go to these places, you want to see what you've seen in National Geographic, mm-hmm. except now it's on your iPhone and it's Instagrammable. And and this issue has just, just skyrocketed. And I've just started picking on people on Instagram to say, look, he's doing it, she's doing it, they're all doing it. Um, and these people don't really understand what I'm calling them out on. So I'm trying to also educate at the same time um, and make them aware, like, look, this is this is problematic and it's systematic. It's something you may not think about. Um, and it, this is this is the key point. It's not racism because you take you you're thinking this way. It's you may not even be aware that this is happening. And there's a certain degree of responsibility that everyone kind of needs to take. This is this is what I think. Yeah, uh, going back to Steve McCurry in particular, I thought it was really ironic because this is a quote by him. Um, where he's talking about what he tries to show in his work. He says he tries to show the human connection between all of us. When when you look at his work, that's the last thing you think, because you see a kind of India um, that's kind of stuck in the colonial past. Like, that's the first thing you see. That's the first thing you notice, the way people are dressed, the way people, you know what I mean? Like, the way they're portrayed. It's the last yeah, thing you think is, oh, they're just like us. Yeah, I, and, and I think also, um, like... <laughs> 
it's it's really interesting even depictions of of what he's selected as part of his like recent work to showcase his portfolio if you go through that i think it's uh papua new guinea um like the the photo immediately you see is of of some um it's very clear they're wearing masks and the smoke and it it, it is this it's almost like everything okay there's there's an argument that this is showing the diversity of his travels and his photography style whatever um but there is it is almost uh, a safari for, for for travel photographers and what's really interesting yeah. um is who gets to call the who who gets to call the narrative right um when certain things have ensued online and i've noticed other instagrammers pipe up and especially other um people that are living within developing quote unquote countries photographers um when they're calling out white photographers one of the key things which they know is the value of your passport enables you to experience the cultures as you experience them um we we know the difficulties of even just navigating within our own countries let alone uh, yeah internationally um and i think the key thing as well is that a lot of the times these photographers are going um a prime example i was on a i was out doing some field work and um we had two uh we 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 were out with um a group of uh young people and young children and they were out on the beach and they were playing um and they were part of a provision which was part of this international development program now there was two tourists and they had fancy cameras with them and you could tell DSLRs proper professional photographers who decided to take photos of the ch- those children and i had to go over to them it was a european couple um no one as 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 big as like Stephen curry but i just went over and i said uh, if you don't mind um please don't take photos uh, the children are under our provision with with our charity um and at first they were quite startled and then um the the man spoke up and he's like oh but it's a it's a public space and i t- i turned around and said they had their child with them I said you wouldn't like it if i took photos of your children exactly uh, then mm-hmm. so makes it right for you to do so of somebody else's um and that sort of took them back um and i just walked away but it really it really played on my mind um because the fact of dropping your own your you want to talk about humanization you want to talk about humanizing the experience you want to talk about um this whole idea of global community but the values of global community or the value of progressive natures of of, of society and capturing only apply to when you're in the UK about consent about sensitivities mm. of of cultures and of yep. faiths as well um and many times imposing yourself within these in in the people that feel obliged to actually host you not that they actually want to like so if you just dropping yourself in it's the customs and norms of of our people to to show that hospitality and a lot of the times um people unwillingly because the the major response when i've called out um when i've called out people for 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 this sort of work it's like oh but the people we were photographing they they were perfectly fine with it uh yeah. you know what's your issue why are you the one that's that's pulling out the issue and it's almost yeah. like okay there 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 has to be and this is what i really like about what ali is saying because it's it's not putting the onus on on the subject it's putting the onus on, on the photographer and i think that needs to happen more there needs to be mm. reassessing of of that entitlement yeah definitely um, can, can i sorry yes sorry. can i just make one point yeah. on something zane just said because i think who the identity of the photographer is kind of key because 
So Steve McCurry, I don't want to keep going on about him, but there's he has this one particular photo of a woman bathing in Nepal in the river. Um, you guys have probably seen it. It's quite a famous one. And her her clothes have kind of gone transparent and they're clinging to her body. So it's quite revealing. Um, and in the comments, there's a lot of disagreement amongst people. Some are like, it's beautiful. Some are like, this is a violation of her rights. But then one one person, I had to take a screenshot just for this. Um, he said, as a Desi Sri Lankan, um, if someone saw me raising my camera, I would be dead now. Like as in yeah. his English isn't great. But the point yeah. he was making was had I taken that photo, the outcome would have been very different. Yeah. And his um, Steve McCurry's comment back to that was this picture was made before you were born. And that's it. Because that has Look, anything to do with anything. Firstly, that doesn't make sense. Even if you're trying to be witty or you, whatever you're trying to be, it hasn't worked. No. <laughs> but also, like, the amount of privilege in that comment, like... Yeah, it's seething. His, his response is, who the hell do you think you are yeah. to tell me anything? When he's made a perfectly valid point, like, yeah. I, I highly doubt he had permission from that woman to take that picture. And he doesn't care, even if he doesn't. Um, and I just think that blase response tells you a lot about his mindset. Yeah, almost no response probably would have been better. better. Yeah. But um, I think what's really interesting is about the comparison as well. Now, if you look at these, um, and, and we're talking about the, these glorified travel photographers, and you compare that to some of the, the primary sources of Orientalism in terms of art critique, right? Or Orientalist depictions in art and uh, fine art you'd see that there is a lot of these it's also almost like an evolution of of that and you you can actually see side by side um very very classical sort of it's it's almost like textbook um and and I, I find that really really interesting because even if you look at i think it, there's there's a really good article on i think uh, the 19th and 20th century photography of of like orient of the orient and like de depictions of women and so like um in there's photos of like ottoman turkey of women in like sort of niqabs and and you know you know that sort of depiction of of this is a society and the sort of you know stereotypical depictions until today that still exists despite us mm. as as a world having yeah. more access to to the world at large and that travel is not something which is only specifically for a set type of per person mm. um, it's still what we what we thrive off and imaginings are extremely important right for any any state and any nation uh, imaginings are important for the people that live within that country and then more importantly for the global community their imaginings of that country they need to be satisfied and that's where literature yeah. intersects, and that's where art intersects and that's where photography mm -hmm. intersects and that's what what builds up our imaginings as as nation states and that's why you know, when you even when you study politics, imaginings for states is so it's so critical, and that's why I think a lot of the times people underplay the the role um, that depictions, photography, art actually has in 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 modern day discourse. But actually, even I know I'm going back to Said, but Said's blatant use of art as well as literature as well as acad acad academic uh, critique it, it's it's all it's all in it's packaged as that as well so i think um the the we run the risk as also as a community when people like ali are 
challenging these things and calling them out. I'm sure, Ali, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many people in, in the, the POC or the Muslim community that would be like, oh my God, I let, let him be. And like, you know, he should be exploring. At least he's had the chance to go and explore and experience these cultures. You know, the, the first people to call it out normally are, are I've, I've found on, especially in digital spaces, a lot yeah. of it's our own. Ali, do you want to add to that? Um, just to add, add to that, I think what's happening there is it's an interesting phenomenon. Without sounding like I'm blaming everything on the European, is we've 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 never done this previously. If you if you look at Muslim literature, and I'm focusing on Muslim, but you can go back into Africa or even non-Muslim um, history of the world. We've always mingled with the Europeans. There wasn't an integration the way we have it today, but there was never a phenomenon where we would talk. And, and and draw the simplistic reductionist views which would propagate through other lands. Muslims always traded with the Europeans, Italians, uh, with the English, with the Spanish, but we'd never brought them into our literature, into our imagination, and we and we turned them into this um this other which had which had a um I, I would say an identity that was in contrast to ours. Muslims for for a long time we we took the best of of the other empires, of the other people, of the Persians and, and the Greeks, Byzantines, the Indians, and we and we absorb them. And this is one of the reasons in my in my mind um, why the Muslim Muslims prospered for so long. And so what we were doing today is exactly the opposite of that. We've now looked to the colonial mindset and said, how can we take what they've taught us or what we see happening? How can we not profit from it? And Edward Side also argues this is one of the uh, proponents of orientalism is we use it to our own benefit, whether or not that's a short-term benefit or a long-term one. We use it for financial gain, or we use it for sympathy, or whatever it is. And that's exactly what we've started to do. We've started to represent ourselves the way um, the white traveler wants to see us, you know. And I, the one example that comes to my mind is um, I went to Marrakesh years ago. It's one of my least favorite places I've ever been to in my life, because when you go to the main square in Marrakesh. I just couldn't understand what was happening. There was so much noise. There was so much music. There was so much this this Moroccan suddenly became alive, which I didn't see. You know, I was traveling in Morocco for two weeks. I'd come down from um, Tangier uh, through Shafshaw and through Fez. And suddenly in Marrakesh, this was this other place where I, I almost want to say you step back 100 years. Um, I think I saw some monkeys. I think I even saw some snakes, you know, mm-hmm. and being being charmed. And, and this was really because Marrakesh is, is the center of uh, European tourism in Morocco. Everybody goes to Marrakesh. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, look, you want to come see what you think you we were? Well, guess guess what? We still are those things and those people. And people dress differently. And when they go home, they change. And they come in the morning again. They, they dress in more colorful ways. And so that's one argument is we, we do to profit ourselves, regardless of what that means in terms of humanism and how we're selling ourselves to our own people and our own children. I was um, going to say, oh. I actually have another example of that, because you know when you go to Dubai and they do these desert ex- excursions, um, so like you go out in a 4 by 4 you stay in like a desert camp overnight, and they feed you and whatever else, um, but part of most of these tours, they kind of, they pull out a belly dancer, yeah. and <laughs> one particular one I went to, they had Bollywood music playing. Um, I literally got my face uh, in my hat and my, my hands as you were like, <laughs> I think I think one one caveat to that, or one something to remember is um, some listeners may be thinking, well, what is wrong with, for example, um, the situation, the situations we both just listed. There's nothing wrong with going in the desert and and getting some music and belly dancing. That's fine, right? 
it's it's part of an experience and you can argue look that world doesn't exist anymore we just want to flavor it's, it's like coming to the us um and going to las vegas or going to new york or coming to london go to casinos whatever that's fine the issue is when you when you know what the people are seeing and this is all they see that is the issue for me personally is we show them ourselves we show them a slice of it a small part of who we were or who we might be and and i think they go back with these imaginations and and they and they think this is who we and what we are um and i i you know you guys probably feel the same way and maybe some of the listeners do we fight this almost every single day being being western being european um i have to explain constantly to people the difference between me and and, and an indian coworker or you know the difference mm-hmm. between me and arab yeah, I, was, yeah. i was asked do you you know i was asked you know do you, do you speak arabic uh, or do you um you know just just ridiculous reductionist views that they have experienced and they said no no but i've been to libya i've been to morocco i i know what i'm you know i'm not i'm not like those ignorant people and mm-hmm. we have to blame ourselves you know, because we do w- it too. would you could you ever imagine anybody getting something I don't know like the French and the British look how close we are geographically but would you ever get anybody confused and thinking you're going to go to London and eat frogs legs or snails like I know no, it's a silly yeah. example but it just wouldn't happen whereas there's so many things between like the Arab world and India for example that people get mixed up and they yeah. don't even bat an eyelid it is, it's just the norm it is crazy. it happened to me a few weeks ago I was at an event and someone kept telling me how they worked in bahrain and that they you know they they worked and they they knew the language and like they loved bahraini people and i just looked at them because they obviously thought i was from there and didn't even ask me once or just one of those countries like, you're from a from a that general <laughs> general region um but yeah it's just it, it's it's like you said ali it's like things we have to navigate on a on a daily basis and that's the problem that these sort of experiences or suppose uphold um for people have to live um, it yeah i just want to go back cuz ali you mentioned earlier about national geographic and their photo competitions and we have to talk about this rooftop photo mm, yeah. um so just for listeners dreams oh, yeah, <laughs> rooftop dreams. dreams that's the one so ali brought this photo to my attention recently i'm going to put it in our show notes so that people listening can have a look but it's the 2016 travel photographer of the year um it got second place in the people category and it's taken by somebody called Yasmin Mund or Mund I'm not oh, sure wow. how to pronounce her name um so it's an image of a rooftop in India um and people down below on top on the rooftop there's um families asleep in different I, I assume they're different houses I, I can't tell if it's different rooms or different houses but the point being there's no roof here because this is a, a very poor area and these people obviously cannot afford a roof um and i have to read the caption for the image um so it was 5:30 a.m. and i had just arrived in varanasi india off a sleeper train i got to my guest house and instinctively climbed the seven flights of stairs to see the sunrise over the famous ganges river as i looked over the side of the rooftop terrace my jaw dropped in disbelief below were mothers fathers children cats dogs and monkeys all sleeping on their roofs it was midsummer in varanasi and sleeping without air conditioning was pretty difficult Can you spot the curry? <laughs> That's my favorite line. Can you spot the curry? I can't I can't talk about it. So I'll let you guys Oh, I can carry I can I can I can go on about this for me. hours. <laughs> can you spot the curry? Like did... No, I couldn't I actually couldn't spot the curry. But where's Wally? I think I think she's just made this up. Like I can't see no Sarland there. There is no... Yeah. Can we first qualify that she's not um she's not Indian. She's not Asian. Her name sounds like she might be. 
Um, yeah, her name. I mean, her first name is Yasmin, but she's as white as um, as as Australians are. She's an Australian um, citizen, from what I can tell. Um, she's a blonde. That's not like it matters, but she's not Asian. The point is, she's not an Orient. Um, to use that word for our own benefit, um, yeah. Because when I first saw that, I was like, "Oh, she's you know, she's she's one of us." Okay, maybe I could be a little bit forgiving. And then you see the rest of her work, and it's like, "Oh, this doesn't end here." Um, so I I was looking at that photo today in detail. Okay, there's a few few comical things other than the obvious. First is National Geographic allows you to download all the photos from the competitions in high res, so you can make them wallpapers and whatever you want, right? This photo you can't because you have to buy it from her website, okay? Um, so I couldn't download a high-res high image to find the curry, firstly. Um, and, the sec- and the second point is... <laughs> You're actively I, looking. No, I was looking. I was like, yeah. well, so I'm, I'm currently working on a, um, a lengthy essay on this, and I was yeah, not, yeah, the, sure. not the yeah. photo, but the whole p- argument. And I just wanted to understand exactly how accurate she was. Mm-hmm. Um, a few things, just to deconstruct this using something Edward would do. Firstly, there's no cats, there's no dogs in the photo. Um, there's, she also says there's mothers and fathers and children. There's no fathers, there's no grown men. So she's absolutely just fabricated this idea yes, that this is a, this is animals and families. Families, literally, this is what they do. This is how their life is. Um, there are two monkeys. There's two exactly two monkeys on the left. Um, there's about three mothers, there's about, you know, four mothers, three girls, there's about eight, nine children. There's even, there's even two babies in the photo. Um, but there's no, there's no cats, there's no dogs, there's no men. This is this idea that she's literally just said, doesn't matter. Should I look at and describe it accurately or shall I just sum it up what I think it is? And, and this, this is, maybe she did this without thinking, but this, this is the core of the issue. You don't care. You don't want to look, you don't really want to understand who who these people are and what they represent and what and what their mm-hmm. lives are like. So from a purely factual perspective, I think that's offensive. She hasn't bothered to even look at what she's selling now on her website for for monetary gain. Um, but other than that, I think you you guys can discuss this to the end. It's just um, yeah. It's it's, it's one but, I mean, awards by the way, it, not just National Geographic. It's won multiple awards. Um, and in this highly the thing that bothers me the most is the invasion of privacy because these women are asleep with their children and they're in such a vulnerable position and on top of that the question of consent is not even considered it's not as though they're telling people to look at them that they're simply poor and can't afford a roof like how dare she take their picture let alone be celebrated for it i I don't think she deserves as much attention but i think she highlights a wider problem right because a, there's no consent given, right? She she may argue there is, but she yeah. hasn't responded to my email. And B, there's also people in that photo who were either semi-naked or fully naked. I mean, there's children in that photo. There's one boy on the top left. Um, I don't encourage you to look, but I mean, he's naked. I mean, you can't see much, but he's fully naked. She didn't once think, hey, is this appropriate? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I also the, see this as well. Like, um, I, I've seen this. You know, this, this this is another thing which I think uh, a lot of the times people are very unaware, not unaware actually, they are blissfully ignorant of. Um, and that's also taking compromising photos when you know those pictures are for mass consumption. And nowadays, especially um, with what you can put out, um, when it comes to the Orient, quote unquote, the, the, you know, anything but the West, it's like, Anything can go, you know. Mm. It's all, and actually, this actually reminds me of the SOAS days. I'm sorry to bring this in, but there was a photo which went up in the SOAS library. Um, and it was a photo by, I think, a SOAS student or something like that. And it was um, three young, which you've 
very clearly uh, visible um, uh, young boys, um, like below the age of 12, um, African boys um, looking out towards the sea, and they they were they had their their backs towards um, towards uh, the, the camera. So you see like you see all their backsides and that, and they're looking out, and um, this caused huge uproar. Now I've got to give them this. Like it was uh, the, at the time, the the people that pulled down the photo, they replaced it with a, a photo of three fully grown men, three SOAS students. Uh, who went to who photoshopped <laughs> to the sea and took that photo and put it up there um, to just prove a point to say you know and mm. that for me I, I know this is, sounds a bit crude for for sacred footsteps but it just it just showed um, the fact that of what makes us uncomfortable and the library then mm. put the photo down and these are fully grown men who are consenting to took that photo themselves yeah. and that down it became quite an iconic thing for for our time at SOAS but um, what I mean to say there is just the fact that even in an academic institution, forget like, you know, a populist medium, that was socially acceptable. That was an acceptable photo for that, for people to put up. And that's coming from a progressive, you know, leftist university. So when you talk about the Orient and and then you talk about Orientalism, Orientalism is not just, this is, this is what really gets me. It's it's not just the facts of of people like um, Rudyard Kipling and the white man's burden. It's, it's not just that which f- falls into Orientalist um, uh, Orientalism. It's the fact of those that try and uphold the status quo, like those that try and act like the progressives as well, mm. um, who they themselves, like a majority of these travel photographers, they, you look at some of their accounts, they're classic yoga pants um, going to Buddhist retreats. Uh-huh going to do meditations and you know like engaging and like even even in in nepal like you know um that you have many many th- and you, you see I, I just came back when i was in the himalayas like you see directly in front of you just no shame with their cameras any anything like share from from all the way to the culture of the locals in, imposing on them walking into um sacred spaces as well and even the locals were saying to us you know at, Sometimes we, we feel like if we say something to them, we're going to lose out on our business, but they are actually offending um, our, our religious sensitivities. And I know this is uh, because I find it really interesting because we're talking about Instagram and how people have so much access to that. Overall, it's still such a huge, huge thing because when you look at National Geographic, this girl may have been disregarding the fact that she's um well she may have not looked into the image as much and she's given up her own imagination but that's also a huge huge statement but the fact that national geographic has documented and celebrated that photo mm. is is extremely extremely telling like the fact that this is a world it, it national geographic is world leader in geogra- uh, geography isn't it it's like that's the key that is the cornerstone for like children growing up in the uk they, they're always taught whenever you're in geography you, you always get taught like go on national geographic to do some research that's the sort of thing which i'm really concerned about i'm not concerned about this girl it's the fact that institutions yeah in i agree orientalist it's- depictions of the east in this day and age that's, that's the ludicrous part not not the fact that this little Australian blonde chick is running off and digging <laughs> of my auntie. It's the fact that National Geographic finds that to be, it finds that to be relevant. It finds that to be iconic. Yep. That's just to be fair to them, because this image was taken in 
it won the competition in 2016 or got second place, whatever. In April 2018, um, I don't know if you guys saw that issue, but Susan Goldberg, who's the editor-in-chief, in her editor's note, she acknowledged, because the issue itself is going to be about racism, that particular issue. Mm. So she, in, that, in her um, editor's note, acknowledged racism in the work of National Geographic. And it was seen as this big watershed moment because she was saying that we've been guilty of a lot of awful things in the past. And some of the staff... It's crazy what they wrote. Um, not just the text was overtly racist, but even the images, because you had pictures of, um, you know, like basically naked people in the middle of a forest. And you've got this learned white man who shows up with a camera or something. Mm-hmm. So you know, showing the backward natives new technology. But anyway, she said that they were acknowledging it as a way of moving on and moving away from that past. So she said an example she gave was in 2015, they gave cameras to young Haitians um, to document the reality of their world after the, um, what was it? Not a tsunami, was it? Earthquake. Earthquake or tsunami? Earthquake, right. Um, So her point being that rather than just sending white people all over the world to document the natives, they're using young people within their own countries to document their world um but i don't know it, 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 how much that's been implemented is it 2016 this photo was published yeah i want receipts i want to know who in national <laughs> geographic because if it takes you two years to realize that had that photo been taken in the uk and you had homeless people um, with their children outside the UK and you took like an aerial shot and dogs running around and somebody sitting in a cafe and the consent wasn't even taken out of those. I'd like to see, you know, the uproar would be, and Mm -hmm. that's that's the thing, when you talk about selective, like it's a selective outrage. And I think many times, like we, we, because there's so many numerous examples of it. Like I was shocked when, when I saw this, when you guys sent this photo, I was like, I, I purposefully do not follow National Geographic. I've unfollowed a lot of these, even even the ones which you have in South Asia, like, you know, in Pakistan. I've unfollowed them for a good reason, because I feel like they, they are so problematic in in their depictions. Um, and just it just hones in on the fact that, an, an, an in, because this is what it is, it's an institution of knowledge. That's what National Geographic is seen as. It's seen as a place of reference. You go to their... It's, it's, it's got its own TV channel. Like that's the main thing, right? So, and the, the National Geographic Photographers Awards is like the place for every person who wants to be. Yeah. Like, I mean, they give you validation basically. If if they've touched something, then it's validated. Like that's a fact now. Yeah. And despite their despite their ridiculously crazy past, people would be shocked to see some of the things they've written in the past, and yet still today, what they touch is like considered valid. Yeah, definitely. Can I just add just just one quick point? Kumazin said, I mean, excellent points. Um, the one thing Edward Side never did was um, look at the political leanings of people because it doesn't really matter. I mean, one of the mistakes that Muslims uh, or minorities make is think that the left is on our side and, and you know, quote unquote, our, because um, Edward Said was argued there is no collective group, but if you want to use it, let's just say there is no, there is no liberal media that's on our side. There's, I mean, The Guardian, which republished that photo by Yasmin Mund, you know, is considered a very left-leaning paper. Mm-hmm. Um, you go, you go through activists, you know, who who go to Africa, go to Asia, earthquakes, tsunamis to help. They're guilty of the same thing. The political leaning, leanings are absolutely irrelevant. Um, and 
one of the interesting thing about National Geographic is, and, I'll, and then I'll be done quickly, is I, I followed a lot of the photographers um, just to see whether this was a white, white and white thing. Um, but it wasn't. Um, there's many American, Chinese, American, Japanese, American, Indian photographers who do the exact same thing. Um, and what this is doing is it's inspiring us, brown, the brown people, the black people to do the exact same thing. I follow some Pakistani photographers who are you know, in Lahore, they take photos. Um, exactly the same style, genre, the coloring, the shadows, you know, the crinkled old face, the hungry child, the old man sitting on the corner. You know, we, we've never been told this is how photography should be, but we've started seeing what we think is the best and we've started doing the same thing. So I've actually started unfollowing people who do stuff like that. And, and I call them out. I say, look, I don't think this is who we are. You know, this is not who we are. You live amongst, you know, these people. Our narrative, you know, we're complex people. We have a rich diversity and we've never, ever in the history of, of the region ever done this to ourselves. So why are we doing it now? Um, it's because people think that's what makes a good photographer. And and I, I think that's something to always remember of. Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a really important point. And I've been, something I've been asking myself a lot lately because sometimes you know when something isn't right, even though you can't, well, I, I can't necessarily articulate it, not as well as you guys have, um, but something just doesn't sit right. And then I was thinking of the other side of it, like what would be considered okay? Like what would be considered um, a good depiction by Western photographers or whatever of any given place? But then I came across um, an article written by the writer Teju Cole, who also went to SOAS, I'll just mention that. <laughs> um, but he... He said that he was talking specifically about Steve McCurry. I know we keep going on about him. And he had just made the point that a lot of his work is staged and it depicts what Indians should look like rather than what Indians do look like. Mm. Um, and I just, I really like this quote. He put, how do we know when a photographer caters to life and not to some previous prejudi prejudice? One clue is that when the picture evades compositional cliché, but there is also the question of what the photographer, what the photograph is for, what role it plays within the economic circulation of images. Um, and that kind of ties in with the whole thing about white gaze and who the photograph is even intended for. Because a lot of the time, even if the photographer is a person of colour, their intended audience is white. So they end up reinforcing this exact same prejudices and showing that same worldview. Mm. Um, and also how we should take into account a body of work because sometimes like one looking at one particular image is not, is not enough. Whereas if you look at the work of a photographer over a number of years and if they're doing the same thing over and over again, then you should call them out because that's a worldview that they're depicting. That's not just one image, like kind of off the cuff. Um, but I'm going to, again, I'll add his article to the show notes too. I think it's really yeah. good. He is also a photographer. Yeah, and a fiction writer. Oh, yeah, yeah and a photographer yeah, too. Yeah, and he writes fiction, and his books are great, so big up. And he also, in that article, he mentions um, an Indian photographer by the name of, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so Raghubir, I think yeah. Raghubir Singh. He's passed away now, but he, he uses his work as an example of of how you really should be taking pictures of a place like India, because he doesn't have the same compositional... Um, not clarity, I don't know. I would, it's not staged, basically. You can tell when you look at his work side to side by um, with McCurry, you can see that his work is not staged and it shows real life in India. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing. You know when something isn't composed. You know when something isn't done through the eyes of no interest. It's obvious. 
people people might be wondering, well, how would I know, right? You you know, I mean, there's a few photographers I follow who are African. They live in Africa, you know. I think one is in um, Zimbabwe. I think another one is in uh, Uganda. You can tell people who are smiling. There's a different atmosphere. There's a totally different look. You can tell these people are looking at their own communities through their own eyes. And, and I think that photography is what we should celebrate and encourage. I think you sort of wrote yeah. on it on your Insta story. Yeah. The, reason I, the reason I did that was because someone said to me, and this was a brown person, they said to me, well, but I don't know what this place looks like. So I'm actually curious to see what people look like and what their lives are. And I said, well, but that's the problem. You can't follow these photographers if you're really curious about this region. And, and I said, well, who can I look at? Because I think it was a rhetorical question. And I said, well, funny you ask, because there's many people. Um, so I just hit one or two, but there's this tons of really good photographers within. Maybe, maybe we should publish a list on the site as well. Yeah, that would make sense. That would be, be good. good. Yeah, there's a there's a guy called Zerar. You should follow him. He's amazing. <laughs> just kidding. He's all right. Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> this is why. By the way, this is why we're taking photos of people because I feel like it's really easy to trap people. Yeah, I can too. definitely see that. Um, saying. And see, Orientalism is also born. Um, and it's compounded in in sort of a color it, it reinforces colonial legacy right um and we yeah. are post-colonial states when when i say we as post-colonial communities we will always have this struggle and this dynamic of actually no it's good for a white person to to come into our it validates us it's good that getting white tourists coming to Pakistan. It's good that we're showing them around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but because that is also in a mindset which we haven't ourselves liberated. And I know it, we, we're just touching on these themes and we're crossing over them very quickly. But I think it's so important that as a community, um, this is just one strand of it, but we have to decolonize the knowledge, decolonize even our, our perspectives and how we're accessing knowledge, how we see information. And I think that's one of the most liberating things we can do collectively to instill that within our community. Um, and then these conversations are much easier to have. There's some really good points. Um, so before we finish up, Zane, I just want to talk to you a bit about the whole Eva Zubek controversy with Dawn.com because um, for people people who don't know what I'm talking about, recently Dawn.com chose um, Eva Zubek, who is a non-Pakistani, to go around the country and document Pakistan and it caused a huge outcry. Um, Zain, could you explain further what happened there? Yeah, I mean, um, so basically, I had, I'd, I'd seen, I'd seen this chick like pop up a few times. Um, so, I, I've like, I've got f quite a few friends in Pakistan. Um, a few of those who have set up like Instagram communities up there, Instameet communities in Islamabad, and, um, and at first, I didn't really clock on as to how big this had spiraled out. Um, so a few of the Pakistani influencers have collaborated with uh, with Eva. Now I've got nothing against against the girl traveling in Pakistan. She she seemed to be enjoying uh, her time out there. Um, but the thing which really ruffled my feathers is the fact that she was chosen as the person to document the story of Pakistan. Um, when you have a surplus of like creatives who number one, haven't been given this accolade or any of this sort of support by Dawn. Um, most of what Dawn does is just repost their photos. And despite having people who have bigger followings, who have better content, uh, decided to choose Eva 
uh, who is, I think she's Polish or if I'm not mistaken, she's European, um, to be uh, the voice of, of this, this story of Pakistan. So when you look at that from even who gets to call what, who gets to tell whose story, you're getting someone who is white, non-Pakistani, female um female privilege in the sense that a lot of the other Pakistani women that were calling her out were saying like you are being given access to the spaces which we are isolated from and we are yeah, distanced from and you are not assessing your own privilege but to to put this into perspective Eva received uh, there was a lot of um uproar uh, about Dawn selecting her and people were like and they were really respectful about what they were saying they were saying look we're not we're not we're not here to say uh, Eva shouldn't be given a platform. We're saying, like, why is it that Dawn has chosen her over any, any anyone else? And we're not against her being in the country, but the fact that she's she is literally occupying something which has never been given to any local creative in the country. Um, and what makes matters worse uh, for me, I just found this absolutely ridiculous. She posted um, on Instagram... Um, that she essentially was saying, let me just get this right. Yeah. She was like, it is about people thinking that a foreigner is taking away opportunities from Pakistani vloggers as if there weren't enough opportunities to go around in a country of 200 million plus people. It's about people assuming that there is such limited space on a global social media that a foreigner shouldn't even try to talk about Pakistan because I'm not from here. Um, so this is exactly what, and she references her experience of growing up in Europe, saying, this is what I think of when I hear this stuff. These foreigners are coming in and stealing our jobs. To anyone with experience living in the West, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, oh. this, this girl posted this as a cat. Um, so I I didn't think much of this. Like, as in, I, I, I didn't think much of this woman. And then I read her post and I was like, so I responded um, saying that, you, you know, you can't compare our discrimination and racism in the UK or in the West as people of colour, which is systemic um, against your experience with Pakistanis that are clearly right by pointing out your privilege as a white person. Um, and I was basically saying that she doesn't afford the privilege of, of calling out oppression when she doesn't see how she's benefiting from her status. Um, and if she had decency, she would step away from the post um, and allow people whose stories it is to tell the stories themselves. Um, now, I didn't expect this to blow up as much as it did, but it was crazy. Like, in the, I just posted this comment, I had done a series of stories, and I had, like, no joke, um, I was abroad at the time, I was on a f um, field work, and literally came back from field and there was like 600 people that had been in touch and followed and started just discussing and people started showing me wow. screenshots of like conversations they've had with her where she's like being really sort of dismissive towards her. and it was just it was really upsetting to see so many of these young Pakistani I'm talking about people under the years of 23 24 like who've got phenomenal mm. work absolutely amazing work um who who were saying things like you know um and it, what was breaking my heart was like when the girls were messaging me and saying, you know, as women, she needs to really like she she's doing all this stuff which we would never be allowed to do. Like even the fact of 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 occupying those spaces which she's in, we would never have access to that. So how can she say that this is just an an opportunity which was given? And it's the fact that Dawn dot com um, unfollowed so it unfollowed all the creatives it was following. 
it yeah, started that's what I was going to say. It yeah, it started blocking it and deleting comments, and it just got really petty. And like, there's been no statement whatsoever from them, no response to that amount of uproar and outrage. But also, it reminds me very, very clearly of the validation which the white man brings. Um, so, like, the the white yeah. the white person brings in 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 our countries and our uh, in our communities, um, and that's that's extremely problematic. Um, when people aren't given the agency to tell their own stories, when the story of the native is being told by the person who is non-native and the non-native cannot respect and does not even understand uh, their their privilege, then there's so many problems here at play. And the fact that we are facilitating that, and I'm not going to lie, like so many people were positive. Then I had one or two people like, like inbox me like, swear at me and curse me and all this stuff and like you know you should be you should like you you can say all this stuff but she's doing such a good job of representing Pakistan and I was like okay maybe she is but at the end of the day Pakistan is more than just mountains and that's another thing which dawn.com um fell down the trap of it it then people started looking at critiquing how depictions of dawn.com just show one side of Pakistan which is just mountains and nice bazaars and that's it you know, like there is more to Pakistan than that. Yeah. So there's another account which um, is run by a very young uh, young person, a really really cool guy. Um, I think it's called Everyday Pakistan, um, and it, it's a really nice account, account because it's it's, account. it's just a community orientated account. So there's a few other people that I, I I've I've shouted out, um, and you can check out. Um, but yeah, it's I I just think it's it's important that people start to break away from there. There's so much we can do in terms of challenging it and calling it out. But there just comes a point where I think you just need to support and create new streams. And that's why I think it's a nice way to tie it because when I look at Sacred Footsteps and what you guys are doing, um, I think it's a huge, huge necessity to have um, a place where people can tell the narratives and tell the stories as they would like it to be told as well and as it should be told and that's through through people themselves and i think recently i was watching um the stories about lahore uh which have mm-hmm. been i've forgotten the guy's name uh, yeah Cheryl's. Cheryl's, and it's absolutely amazing because those those things i would always overlook when i went to bajai masjid i'd be very inquisitive about like the frescoes and understanding but the fact that that we have that insight and the the stories are being told by the people that live and breathe that city that's what that's what gets me excited so yeah definitely i know i know it's it's a negative to end on on either but on the positive side um for every sort of one negative portrayal or one negative um outlet i feel like people are now mobilizing and digital spaces are giving wave to new uh, for people to come forward and to build the blocks and set their own narratives straight. Yeah, um, completely, very much so. Um, from our point of view, like when we get stories done by people who, uh, you know, are like from the plays, they're very familiar with it. There's a world of difference between what they produce and somebody who maybe mm-hmm. is just visiting the yeah. place. So it does, it makes a huge difference. So I just want to end by talking about someone who I feel is a good example of an outsider going into a country as a photographer. Um, so there's an account called Lost With Purpose run by somebody called Alex. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And she's a Westerner who has spent some time in Pakistan. I, I believe she yeah. travels through the country on motorbike. Um, but I feel her work really differs from some of the people we've already spoken 
already spoken about in the sense that firstly she's very much aware of her own privilege um, as a western woman who because she's given access that local women are not given and she acknowledges that firstly and secondly you know she's in hardly any of her pictures um, and you know she's not there to take selfies with locals um, in order to I don't know validate her work in some weird way Um, and her captions are also very good like they're made up of interactions with people, like genuine interactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's genuinely interested in the history of the and place. If you look at you look at one of the things which I absolutely loved about so Lost with Purpose came about. I think did somebody 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 recommended it after the whole Eva Zubek rant I was doing. Um, yeah, so it was a Pakistani one of the girls who had a real big issue with Eva. Uh, one of the Instagrams in Pakistan said, "I've met with Lost with Purpose, and she was absolutely phenomenal. She blew me away. She was so respectful, and you know. And if you look at her photos, one of the key things which I really liked is the fact that the depictions of even things like uh, uh, Shabazz Lal Kalander's uh, Mazar in Sevan Sharif. Um, normally, Western depictions of uh, Sevan Sharif are." Agarbati, a man mm. with dreadlocks, mm. his head around, um, like drugs, nighttime, doll, all of all of the the sort of like mm. the, the things which they want to depict about a Sufi shrine. Uh, what I loved about her her depictions was the fact that it showed family and it showed it showed the shrine, actual shrine inside as well, um, and that's what really stood out for me. Um, and the, the, there's another thing which she, I think the way that she also she does it very tastefully. She captures buildings more than she does people, and when she does capture people, she actually has good quotes from them and their names. And you know these simple things like you know getting someone's name, asking their permission yes, to exactly. take photos. I think those things go a long way. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm so conscious that this is going to be our longest ever podcast episode, but I. I feel like a lot of the things we've spoken about needed to be spoken about and um, it'd be good to have another discussion on the topic again in future. As usual, thank you so much for listening. Everything that we've alluded to and talked about can be found in the show notes, so check those out. Why not drop us a line sometime, let us know what you thought of the episode, how you think things are going. We can be found on all the usual social channels, so it's Instagram and Facebook is at Sacred Footsteps and on Twitter is SFootsteps. Um, you can also drop us a line by email so that's info at sacredfootsteps.org we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear your travel stories and we'd love for you to do some stories for us so um, yeah get in touch and see you guys next time Uh, stay safe and best of travels